0: But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate Pilate release Barabbas instead. "'What shall I do then with the one you call King of the Jews?' Pilate asked them. "'Crucify him!' they shouted. "'Why? What crime has he committed?' asked Pilate. But they shouted all louder, "'Crucify him!' Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace, that is Praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and sped on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away out to be crucified.
1: Well, thank you, Stephanie, very much. Thanks for doing the reading for us. We are going to pray as we start to look deeper at uh, God's Word in Mark. Lord God, thank you that we can gather here this morning. Thank you that we can come to uh, sing praises to you, that we can gather together to sacrifice some time to meet together and to hear from your Word. We pray this morning that you would be speaking to us clearly, that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear and understand what you are saying to us through Mark's gospel this morning. Amen. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I've read the book series a couple times. Uh, they're nice and short books, so you can often read them in, like, overnight. Um, and if, if you're unaware, C.S. Lewis, the author, has done very deliberately, weaved into his series the gospel. In the books themselves, Aslan, the saviour figure, the, the lion, even suggests to the protagonists that he himself is Jesus in our world. In the book, The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, there is, an, there is an old rhyme about Aslan in the country of Narnia, and it goes, "'Wrong will be right when Aslan comes into sight.' At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. If you are coming to the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time, and didn't know that Aslan is meant to be this fictional, fictional parallel universe's incarnation of Jesus, then you might have the idea that when Aslan stands amidst an army, that is going to bring victory through the traditional means of warfare, or at least what passes as traditional in a fictional universe. However, because Aslan is meant to be Jesus, he isn't the saviour and king that the Narnians, or even the protagonists, expect him to be. We see something surprising. Unexpected, the saviour dies. Very few mythological stories end with the hero dying. It doesn't end with the great story. Dead. Yet that is what Aslan does. And the viewer or reader is surprised by this part of the story. I open with this because there is an obvious connection between Aslan in this book and Jesus in our passage today. The question of Jesus' identity and what kind of king he is starts getting made clear and answered in our passage. The exchange which occurs between Jesus in this passage may be a more striking part of the passage, but it plays into the bigger question of Jesus' identity. Mark's Gospel is focused on Jesus' identity throughout the whole book. The people are slow to understand, even though the evil spirits know who he is and confess who he is right from chapter 1. It isn't until Peter's confession in chapter 8 that we see a person recognise who Jesus is. And moving on from chapter 8, Jesus looks towards Jerusalem and heads there. He's going to his anointing, his royal entrance, crowning, and ex- exaltation on the Good Friday. So as we verse, look at verse 1, we see very early in the morning, on that Good Friday, the chief priests, the whole leadership mob of the Jewish people, took Jesus to Pilate. And they're doing so to have him executed. Pilate's question to Jesus in verse 2 concerns his kingship. Now, Luke's gospel gives us a little extra detail, telling us that the Sanhedrin accused Jesus of being a king. And so, subverting the nation and also opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. And so, this is why in Mark's gospel, Pilate's first question to Jesus is about his kingship. We should note that the word which Pilate uses for king... A native Latin speaker would not use to describe the Caesar in Rome. This word he has used is used to describe a puppet king. And that is what the Sanhedrin accuse him of, being a king who doesn't have Rome's consent to rule under Roman rule. One famous example is the Herod who reigns in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2 during Jesus' birth. Jesus answers Pilate, and it's a strange answer. Um, Depending on the translation you're looking at in front of you, if you have your own Bible with you, it can vary from, it is as you say, you say so, or you have said so. So we get three different answers just in the one version of the gospel. Luke, Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John even have different answers in terms of the direct translation. So altogether, they show that Jesus accepts the title which Pilate gives him. But the passivity of Jesus shows us that the responsibility of this description lies on Pilate, not Jesus. Jesus' reservation to give an active answer and claim this title of kingship is because Jesus has a different idea of what a king is, what kind of king he is. In verse 3 to 5, we see the Sanhedrin take the opportunity to accuse Jesus of more things, which, again, Mark leaves out, that you can find in Luke's Gospel. So this forces Pilate to see how Jesus responds to this new lot of accusations. According to Roman law and practice, after hearing the plaintiff, the, def- the defendant would have their opportunity to have their testimony made. And Pilate does that. Yet we see to Pilate's awe... Jesus refuses to reply. In this little moment, we actually get to see part of Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 53. Jesus becomes oppressed and afflicted, silent like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep to be sheared is silent. Jesus didn't open his mouth. According to martyr trials, Silent defenders are given three opportunities to change their mind and defend themselves. And it's because the Roman magistrates were uncomfortable with, with you know, sentencing someone who was, un, who was reluctant to defend themselves. And we see Pilate doing it here. He attempts to get Jesus to defend himself. As we move to verses 6 to 15, Pilate attempts to free Jesus from this accusation and the resulting punishment of being a rebel king. But instead of having Jesus freed in the amnesty which Pilate usually would, the crowd wants Barabbas. Barabbas is an insurrectionist, a proper rebel, someone who is feared by the Roman regime, and the people want him freed over Jesus. We see in verse 9 to 11, Pilate attempts to free Jesus because Pilate understands that the only reason Jesus is here is because the Sanhedrin are jealous and they make him out to be a rebel, which he clearly isn't. But the crowd have rejected Jesus. The crowd is so against Jesus that they would rather have this insurrectionist freed over Jesus. Jesus, who came healing, teaching, forgiving, and saving. And yet they want a terrorist freed? But their rejection goes one layer worse still. John's account gives us more detail. It's clear how opposed to Jesus the crowd is. They tell Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Now this reminds me of an interaction between two characters in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm not sure how well you know these books, or movies even. Uh, There are two characters from this one kingdom. Uh, One's Boromir, and the other is Aragorn. Boromir is uh, a family of caretakers, stewards for the crown of Gondor. Um, Aragorn is the last descendant and a distant relative of the last king. And the story has it that the viewer becomes invested in Aragon as we see him go and see that he is a worthy man to follow. And when his identity gets revealed to Boromir, the crowd, the viewer and the reader starts hoping for a restoration of the kingship. This is what we've been hoping for in the story. But we get this stabbing reply Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. And instantly, for the rest of the book, you are worrying about Boromir. You're watching him and you're mistrustful of him. To fully understand Boromir's rejection, the viewer and the reader needs to understand that in the thousand years, the kingdom, this you know, fictitious kingdom, has declined significantly. Now this crowd, which we're looking at in Mark 15, has done the most un-Jewish thing possible. They reject Jesus, the son of David, as their king, in favour of some Gentile ruler who lives 2,000 kilometres away as the crow flies. The Jews turn down their offer to have the first Jewish king in 500 years. Instead of having their king... The crowd petitions Pilate in verse 11 to have Barabbas, the insurrectionist, released to them. Having failed to release Jesus, Pilate asks the crowd in verse 12, What should be done to Jesus? The crowd replies, Crucify him! Pilate continues to, to free Jesus, but the crowd won't have any of it. They shout all the louder, Crucify him! Pilate gives in in verse 15. He gives the crowd what they want. Jesus is handed over to be flogged and then crucified. Jesus, the son of God, is exchanged for Barabbas, a terrorist. Jesus gets what Barabbas so rightly deserves, to be hung on a criminal's cross and left to die. And as we move to verse 16 to 20 in our last act of this passage today, we see in verse 16, Jesus is taken to the praetorium, uh, a bit of the palace where Pilate would have been living, and the soldiers cover Jesus with a purple robe. Purple signifies royalty. Purple dye, which they use, is made from uh, old sea, seashells, uh, from sea snails, and the purple dye is three times more valuable than gold. Even Roman emperors were cheap when it came to buying purple dye. The soldiers complete their mock adoration of Jesus by weaving together a crown made from thorns and putting it on his head. Now, what comes to mind when we think of crowns? We're probably thinking of, you know, these big metal heavy things covered in colourful stones and worth a significant amount of money, probably like the British imperial crown, probably one of the more famous crowns we have still today. It's worth a lot of money, and none of us can touch it. But in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman culture, wreaths were made from plants to make a crown. Now, there are two pretty well-known examples. The first is the victory crown, used by the Roman uh, generals. After a victory, they'd have their triumph march into Rome, and they'd be given a wreath made from laurel, looked to make like a horseshoe, and placed on their ears to make a crown. The other famous example is the olive leaf wreath given to Olympic athletes. If they were a champion in their event, they were given a wreath again in a horseshoe, placed on their head as part of their victory. Well, these wreaths which the Romans used and the Greek Olympians received were full of life. They're beautiful plants and they signify glory, beauty, strength, victory, and virility. But the soldiers give Jesus a crown made of thorns. It stands for humiliation, ridicule. And contempt. Throughout the whole Bible, thorns are used as a sign of punishment. They are the result of neglect and ridicule. They are the result of sin. Thorns grow as part of Adam and Eve's sin, not the beautiful plants. Jesus is cruelly crowned. Symbolically, you could say, our sin has been placed on Jesus's head. This is our king, defeated, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, and humiliated. This is the Jesus the world sees. This is what they see. But this is the Jesus we need. Once the soldiers have had their sport, they take off his purple robe and lead him out of the city to be crucified. Now this passage has a few layers of importance for us, and to the first century Christians. They kind of all weave into the one point in the end. We see in this passage the ultimate revelation of what kind of king Jesus is. Across the Gospels we see that the Jews hope Jesus is going to be a military king, that he's going to free them from the tyranny of Rome. This is the exact accusation the Sanhedrin make against Jesus. But in this passage, we see what kind of king Jesus is. He isn't a military king, he isn't a political king. Jesus is a servant king, he is a sacrificial king who obediently follows God's plan of salvation for us by being our substitute. Just as the sin offering in the Old Testament dies in the sinner's place, so too does Jesus die in Barabbas' place. Together these layers reveal to us that, and the readers of the first century that Jesus is a heavenly king. Jesus is the king God wants, not the king I want. Jesus is the king after God's own heart. He is a counter-cultural king. Jesus doesn't fail like David or Solomon or any of their sons. Jesus seeks God's glory, honour and kingdom first. He chooses humiliation, torture and death for the sake of God's plan of salvation. This ought to have an impact on our lives just as it did 2,000 years ago. Jesus' kingdom isn't political. It's not a kingdom of this earth. He is a heavenly king. So the impact 2,000 years ago was that the early Christians understood that we're not looking to make a political Christian kingdom. Our goal isn't political influence as followers of Jesus. Since Jesus' kingdom isn't earthly, we don't have to be anxious when we see Jesus, his offer of salvation, and his people despised and rejected. Because as Jesus says in John's Gospel, his kingdom is not of this world, and his kingdom will reign forever. Jesus came to suffer and die under man's rebellion and opposition to God. Jesus told his disciples that the world will hate us because we belong to him. Jesus' followers will be persecuted because they persecuted Jesus. So we are warned. Don't be surprised when it happens. Finally, in this passage, we can rejoice that Jesus is the type of king he is. Because he is the type of king we need the one to save us from God's rightful, righteous wrath. We need the man who can be our substitute, to take God's wrath for us so that we we can be made clean by his sacrifice, so we can be made right with God. So to summarise the value of this passage, we don't have to fear the world's hatred for us and Jesus, because Jesus' kingdom is... Is heavenly and eternal we ought to follow in Jesus as our example of humility and sacrifice to God seeking God's kingdom above our own comfort and pleasure and hopes and desires finally and I think the most important celebrate and thank God for the obedience of Jesus That by his humility and substitution for us, in his death, we are made right with God. Because that's why we're here today. And that's why we're going to be here next weekend. Because if he didn't die for us, then we're wasting our time here today.
0: Amen.